If you would uh, open your Bibles, please, to Revelation. Uh, we're in chapter 2 this morning, and uh, we're looking at um, what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2. The heart wants what the heart wants. Have you heard this, this line before? It was uh, first made famous by Emily Dickinson in some of her correspondence. She's credited uh, with using it first. And uh, that line has been borrowed uh, by many others over the years to justify some of their actions. Woody Allen uh, was a notable one. And more recently, Selena Gomez uh, actually uh, wrote a song uh, about that. Um, Again, both celebrities have cited this particular line to justify some of their ill-advised and uh, perhaps even immoral behavior. Uh, Woody Allen used this line to justify not only divorcing his wife, but then marrying his adopted stepdaughter, Sun Yi, who was 35 years younger than him. When that scandal erupted, Allen was confronted and asked about his actions, to which he responded, heart wants what the heart wants. In 2014, Selena Gomez turned the line into a popular song about a relationship that she knows isn't healthy and isn't good for her, but the heart wants what the heart wants. I used this line to get another cookie that I ought not have, right? (laughs) Against my better judgment, the heart wants what the heart wants. Uh, The implications of this kind of thinking, of this line, what's sort of underneath it, the underpinnings of it suggests that we are just animals with appetites and that our appetites are legitimate and need to be satisfied regardless of the consequence. That's what the line suggests. Although I would submit to you that there is, there is a kernel of truth in this line. While it's mixed with a whole lot of falsehood, there's truth in there too, and that is this. There is incredible power to our heart's longings, either for good or for ill. Uh, The Proverbs refer to it this way, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Uh, And throughout the scriptures, we see that the heart is not just the place where we feel, it's not just the place we emote, but the heart is actually the control center for every person. It is the source of our longing. It's the home of our desires. It's the womb of our motivations. The heart is the fulcrum of our life, the pivot point. The heart is what animates all of our actions. In other words, everybody lives from the heart, like it or no. And that ought to scare you a little bit, especially for those of you who know the scriptures well and you know what Jeremiah says about the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? According to Augustine, uh, it is the problem in our heart, the sin that we carry on is a matter of, uh, of disordered loves. And they need to be rightly ordered to the Lord. And that's what our message is about this morning. If the heart is such an important place and the operating center from which we live, then, and this is the point I want you to hear above everything else, then we must carefully tend to our heart. 
carefully curating a love for God and man. Uh, That's the theme that emerges in John's letter to the Ephesians here in chapter 2 of Revelation. I want to remind you, this is a church that John knows well. He served there as a pastor. Uh, He lived there before uh, being exiled to the island of Patmos. Uh, It was kind of like Anchorage, not the capital of the region, but sort of the prominent city of the region. It did have uh, a harbor that was used for trade, and it it was on a major trade route. So it was a very important and influential uh, city. And I got to walk through it on my sabbatical, and I have lots of pictures of it. If you ever want to take me out for coffee and see some pictures, I'll show you. I don't want to bore you this morning with too many of them. I'll bore you personally, not altogether. (laughs) You guys might turn on me. But here's what Jesus has to say to the church through the Apostle John. Follow along with me in Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I want to make some general observations of the seven letters that we find here in the book that we're going to be working through over the next several weeks before we get to our specific passage. First of all, I just want to remind you, these are actual letters to actual historic churches in Asia or modern-day Turkey, and they address actual issues of the day. Uh, In other words, the meaning of these letters was first for them and secondarily for the church, for the broader church that would develop uh, after them. Uh, And so I I just want to remind you that because some sort of look at these things and think as though they were just written to uh, the church that would emerge after the fact, but they had meaning right away. There was an immediate intention behind these letters. It's their mail first, okay? We learn through them uh, what we find here. Uh, That being said, there is benefit for all of the church, both in that day and in the churches uh, to come after them. Uh, In fact, the book of Revelation was given to each of these seven churches. It wasn't as though they got their part, their letter. They got the whole thing. You You ever get your neighbor's mail by mistake? You know, sometimes it can be sort of funny. You're like, oh, I didn't realize that was their political affiliation. Good to know, you know, whatever. And you kind of see their mail. Well, you can imagine here, you know, all of this goes out to all of these seven churches. So the Laodiceans could say, boy, we really, you know, got kind of rung up there, but not as bad as the Ephesians did. In other words, they each were instructed, but they all were instructed. And we, the church today, are also instructed by what we find there. And this broader importance of the letter is explicit in verse 7. Whoever has ears, right? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Uh, So we are invited into this. We are invited to learn from them. 
There is gold here for us to discover. The things that they are dealing with here in Ephesus at this point in time are the same kinds of things that we're going to be dealing with. As Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun, right? We're people, we're humans, we're sinners. We can learn from what is here. Um, I also want to show you just kind of a structural pattern um, that is here and that continues in each of uh, the letters that we're looking at. And there's uh, predominantly these three parts. First of all, there's commendation. They're complimented on something. And then secondly, there's a complaint. They're doing something wrong. And then thirdly, there's a correction to it. Pretty simple, but you're going to find this prevailing throughout the letters that, uh, that we're looking at. And for Ephesus, let's see their commendation. Here it is. Here's what they're doing right. They're lovers of the truth. They're guarding against falsehood and against false leaders and the wickedness that comes from them. And when I think about this, and I think about some of those tasks of promoting the truth and confronting falsehood, one of the things that comes quickly to my mind is the knowledge that this is tiring work. I know this firsthand, and so do you. This is a wearisome chore to stand for truth in a world that has just absolutely gone mad. And it is something that all Christians are to carry out, but it was such a needed, necessary, and continuing task that God in his wisdom set aside a plurality of elders in churches, including their pastors, to be regularly about this task because it was necessary. This also has to be done with care. Because very often the person who has embraced some kind of or accommodated some kind of distortion has done so because it's personally convenient for them or comforting them for them in some way. Uh, in other words, let me give you an example of this. We Just this summer we did quite a bit of traveling and so we had a conversation with a young man not from the region here. But one of the things that he had suggested in conversation was that perhaps the Holy Spirit was the female figure within the triune Godhead. That was his idea. This, of course, is not found anywhere in the scriptures. Something of his own making, a fabrication of his. Uh, and because he was struggling with his own sexuality. And so this was a distortion of his, born out of his wounds. This man was having difficulty relating to God as God has revealed himself and trying to conform God to his own life rather than conform his life to the good design of God. So a correction is needed here, but consider a little too much truth a little too soon without listening and understanding could actually do some harm. The theological correction is simple. God is spirit. God is not gendered like we are. But again, one has to take time to listen and understand where he's coming from and how he got here if he's to embrace the correction and walk it out in his own life. And as we look at this in the uh, life of the Ephesians, they did this kind of thing well. If you do this in your life, if you're one who's standing for truth and correcting falsehood, then you know the personal cost of doing so. It is wearisome. It will cost you relationships. It will bring strain into your life. It is difficult. And they did this in a steadfast way. In fact, not only did they compassionately confront falsehood, but they confronted false teachers and false movements and wicked men. And I would submit to you that confronting this latter group is even more wearisome. 
It is incredibly tiring to continue to stand up for the truth, especially against those who would be so dangerous with falsehood. There is another kind of person out there, not one who just accommodates truth because of a wound, but one who knows what they're peddling is false. And they would teach it and, and, and use it in the lives of other people in detrimental ways. In fact, in the scriptures, we are regularly cautioned to test the spirits, to test prophecies, to take the good and leave the bad. In Jesus' own words, he says, by their fruit you will know them. We are to be regularly testing these kinds of things. And this is what the Ephesians did very well. And in this case, they had tested those who claimed to be apostles and were not, and found them to be false, and they are commended for that. And so this particular level of correction is not just rescuing little lamb me from their errant ways. This is beating off the wolves, those that would come in and prey upon Christ's church. Grant Osborne has summarized their commendation well. He says this, The Ephesian Christians have not only stood firm for orthodoxy, but they have triumphed over the heretics and maintained their spiritual watchfulness. So there are false teachers, there are false apostles, there are wicked men, and the Bible says, are you ready, church? The Bible says they are not to be tolerated. Them are fighting words in our culture. Our culture says tolerate everything. In fact, celebrate everything. The Bible says false apostles, false teachers, and wicked men are not to be tolerated. We're to be those who stand for truth in defense of the community of Christ and the reputation of Christ. There's another example of this given in verses 6 and 7 where he says, but I, uh, I, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I've already talked about sort of the distinction between shepherding correction, where one who is caught in sin is, or caught in misunderstanding or mistruth is kind of brought back in and, and, um, and, and kind of corrected in a shepherding way. And that versus a sharp correction, which is you're preying upon God's kids and uh, you're not going to have any business here. So those are two different things. But I want you to notice this. The text says that they hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Notice they do not hate the persons. And God also hates the practices. The text says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, not who I also hate, right? It's the practices that are the problem here. And we all probably know the old line, it's good, it's helpful, that says, hate the sin and not the sinner, right? I will say this, though. I think that line is a little too thin, and it might leave us in the place of indifference. If I could grab that same concept and wake it up and maybe sharpen it just a bit, I think it ought to go like this. Love the truth and love the one who does not yet know it. Love the truth and love the person who does not yet know it. We are not called in the scriptures to be simply not non-haters. We are called to be lovers of God and lovers of our fellow man. And that our aggressive stand for truth needs to be funded by our love for God and man. 
If it is not, if our stand for truth isn't funded by love, then our firm stands for truth is just little more than self-righteousness. Right? I love what Scott was talking about uh, for those of us who maybe have been approached by someone else trying to convert us to their ideology. And it, whether they believe what we do or something else, when you listen to their, uh, their effort to try to convert us, it does not take long to smell whether or not this is motivated by love or something else, right? You can tell. I had a couple of Mormons come to my door just the other day, and um, they asked what I did. And I, I was, <laughs> I, it was kind of a moment of, oh, I really want to be dishonest here. <laughs> so I, told, I said, well, I'm a pastor. And they said, oh, oh, where, what church? And I told them a little bit, and we got talking, and and um, I'll be honest, I respected that they act on their conviction to share. I respect that. But I could also tell I was a notch on the belt. It wasn't funded by love. It was funded by some merits I think they thought they were earning. And I could tell that. And I simply mean to learn from that example, even as Scott was talking earlier about our actions, whether it's correcting in truth or sharing the gospel, need to be driven and motivated by love for God and for others, not just whacking people over the head with truth. A steady stand for truth and vigilantly defending against false teachers and the wickedness of men is exhausting. I know that. It is for this kind of reason that churches send their pastors on sabbatical, and I say thank you for that. Thank you. But it comes with risks to our own heart. And I don't just mean mine, I mean yours, because if you're a follower of Christ, you're about this too. It comes with risks to our own heart. Robert Mounts has said it very well this way, every virtue carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. Every virtue carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. In other words, if we're skilled at something, watch out, we may become prideful. Are we a good communicator? Watch out. We may verbally dominate others and fail to listen. Are we an insightful person? Watch out. You may see right through people and write them off with no grace and no mercy. Are we compassionate? Watch out. You may be tempted to sacrifice truth at the altar of love. Every virtue carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. In other words, your strength is also your weakness, and mine is too. And we need to know this about ourselves. And so it seems for the Ephesians that their steady pursuit of truth and orthodoxy has become for them a burden and a duty to the detriment of their own affection for God, which leads to the complaint. You have lost the love that you had at first. What a difficult thing to hear from Jesus himself. Because these are his words. This is his letter. John is the carrier. He's the mouthpiece, the spokesman. But these are Jesus' words, his commendation and his correction to the church, his complaint to the church. In fact, he begins his message with the sobering words, I know your deeds, right? I know them, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And more than just your deeds, he is omniscient about their heart and our heart, and he knows they have lost their first love. Now, what's really interesting here, too, is 
we can actually see, we know that uh, the letter written to Ephesus in the book of Revelation is written in the 8090s. Uh, the first letter that we have in the scriptures written to the Ephesians by the Apostle Paul was written in the 8060s. So about a 30, 35 year gap. The text says, see how far you have fallen, right? Consider how far you have fallen. We can look at the text and see how far they have fallen. We can look back to what the Apostle Paul said to them. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That's where they started, their love for all God's people. That was the reputation that got to the Apostle Paul. In fact, he closes his letter to them by saying this, Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. How far have they fallen from there to having forsaken their first love? And so before we get to the correction that Jesus gives to the Ephesians, I want to make a few important observations that should get all of our attention. The first is this. Our love for God can grow cold. That's one of the things we're confronted with. If it happened to the Ephesians who started so well, can it happen to us? Can it happen to you? You better believe it. And for probably many of you, this doesn't come as any kind of surprise. You might be sitting there and and thinking, yeah, Absolutely, there was a season where I wasn't sure if I loved the Lord. It was pretty rough for a while. Some of you might be saying, that wasn't back then and back there. This is right here and right now. I'm trying to find my love for God. Maybe your particular spiritual life right now is sort of mechanical or just going through the motions. Maybe you've lost your first love. Whether you're there now, or on your way there, or maybe a long way from it, I think there is a warning that each of us should take here. The Ephesians who started well fell a long ways. They're a cautionary tale for us. Uh, This led me to kind of think about, how does this happen? And, you know, I've pastored here for about 17 years in Alaska at this church, and uh, I've watched it unfold a couple of times. I've seen the train wreck. And uh, I would tell you, I think there's about four common paths to this that I'll just throw out there for your consideration. The first pathway where I see this happening is it sort of comes when there is a sudden shock to somebody's faith. Something they didn't see coming rocked their world. Maybe it was an accident or a death, a loss. Uh, divorce, a betrayal of some kind of trust. And that person just says, this is not the world as I understood it to be. This does not seem to be from God's hand. Where is God? And I think that's one way it happens. The second way I think this happens is what I would call a steady stream of disappointment. It's not that there's been one big thing. It's just that there's been one thing after another thing. And the steady train of disappointment has been hard. And in this situation, somebody says, I believe God is there. I believe, but I'm having a hard time understanding what good God is if this is what keeps coming my way. So we have a sudden shock or we have a steady stream of disappointment. The third one, I think, is for some people is that they just get bored. They just have a monotonous routine. They have some habits. 
but there's no life in those habits, and they haven't really bothered to wake them up or change them a little bit. They haven't bothered to read a new book or listen to a new song or engage a new believer or meet somebody new who is a believer to hear about their testimony. They just kind of run the same routes over and over and over again, and they just get bored. The fourth one, I think, is, is similar to this, and this is, I would say, it comes from fatigue. Fatigue of just dutifully serving with no Sabbath. They just grind. They just keep serving. They just keep serving and keep serving and keep doing and keep doing, and they don't ever rest. And I would remind all of you that God modeled rest. The omnipotent one who never tires and never grows weary after creating all of the world and calling all of it good models rest, not because he needed it, but because he knew we needed it. And he commands it, and he actually not only demands it, but he dignifies it. Jesus himself regularly withdrew from the crowds to draw near to his heavenly Father. And I would submit to you, if Jesus needed to do that, then we need to do it even more. Even more. So those are just, I think, four different paths that lead to a diminishing love for God. Uh, Before we get on with the prescription here, let's acknowledge a couple other things. Our diminishing love can occur right alongside obedience and duty. In other words, You can be going to church in a ministry, an elected officer of Bethel Church, even one who comes to the business meetings and signs in. (laughs) I say that as a little nudge because at our our last business meeting, we were one of you short from a quorum. So a little reminder there. Okay, scolding over. You can be doing all of these things and contending for the truth and giving regularly and serving diligently and all of that can accompany a cooling affection for God. You can be so busy serving God you don't get about loving God. Third thing here, observationally, it seems to me that our love for God can be lost permanently. And what I mean here, I'll be very, I want to be careful with this. I do not mean that I think a person can lose their salvation. I believe once we are regenerated, we're regenerated by, regenerated by the work of God, and we are secure in his family. But there are plenty of times when we see somebody who seems to be a believer, who seems to start with the Lord and doesn't seem to finish with him. And so there's a lot of mystery in all of that, but I will simply say this. As we look at the text, it seems to me that one's love can be lost permanently. In fact, the correction here is, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I think what's at stake here for for this corporate church is more or less their vitality, their influence, their their position in in the world uh, to be a light to others. But they're told they're going to lose it if they don't turn back to the Lord. And while this caution is given to the corporate church here, I think it's also a caution that individuals need to be warned by. Uh, There are people who simply walk away from their love for God. I'll give you a couple examples. Rob Bell is one. Pastor, mover and a shaker, church planter. And he just simply deviated, 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 and pretty much just left completely the profession of faith. Bart Ehrman is another one. This is a first-rate scholar. 
This is a graduate of, of uh, Wheaton. And he walked away from his faith. His love had grown cold. Most recently, and this one has been kind of shocking to Amy and me as we've talked about it, Joshua Harris. Uh, many of you remember him. He was the author of the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, back in the day. You guys remember that one? He's been a pastor of a church in the Southern Baptist movement for a long time now. And just two weeks ago, he and his wife announced they're getting divorced. She's pursuing some kind of efforts with the LGBT community, and he has walked away from his faith. I don't mean to be cheeky about it, but he has kissed his faith goodbye. So I bring that up because these are people, I mean, this is disconcerting. These are people who should know better, right? In other words, not everybody recovers from this growing cold. They don't, not everybody grow, recovers from this spiritually. And it seems to me that the spiritual autopsy usually reveals that what was actually once loved wasn't God as he is, but some kind of manufactured mini-God. Something I think Tozer would say was so ignoble and so unworthy of worship. And I think that is often what happens. Many have simply embraced something other than God as he is. Tim Keller has said it this way very provocatively. If your God never disagrees with you, you may be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. That's a sermon right there. I don't know how that guy does it. He's amazing. My encouragement for you, especially those of you who find yourself in different ministry roles, is this. Good self-care is essential for yourself and for others, for your long-term devotion to the Lord and for the benefit of others. If you are serving others and not stopping to nourish yourself on the Lord and to grow and to curate an affection for God himself, then you are feeding others by starving yourself and you will hit the wall. Another way to think about this is this. As important as your to-do list is, is your to-stop list. Uh, here's some news for you. You're finite with only so many hours in the day and requiring so much sleep. And God has not given to you all tasks. He's called you to some. And you need to discern what those are. If we're going to do something new, we're going to have to let go of something we were doing and trust that God will care for that as well. Well, let's get to the correction that Jesus has for them. The correction is repent and renew. And I would say that inherent in Christ's command to the Ephesians here is some good news. First of all, we are sort of brought to see that our waning love for God and man can actually be recovered, restored, rekindled. It doesn't just have to evaporate. If we've started down that road, we can change the path. And I want to illustrate this morning. It's a little bit early to be talking about wood stoves and firewood and all of that kind of stuff. So sorry, a little bit, uh, just a little bit. Um, we have a wood stove, and we burn about three to four cords of birch every year. Only birch. I'm a bit of a Nazi about that. And... Um, and we can get about 10 to 12 hours of a burn cycle out of our stove if I really stack it good, right? It's a little bit of a game we play. And when I open it in the morning after it's burned through the night, um, usually there's, you know, all I can see is about a pile of ash. But as soon as I open the flue and open the door and some fresh wind sort of comes across it, you start to see a little glimmer of light. 
And if you get out the rake and kind of start culling through the ash and you find those coals and those embers, you can kind of bring them up and bring them together and you make your little pile. And these embers, which have a little bit of warmth and light to them, begin to work against and upon one another. And a little bit of fresh wind and a little bit of proximity and it comes back to life. And you add new fuel and you're off and running, right? This is the discipline that we do as Alaskans. I would tell you this is a picture of a spiritual discipline. To be in proximity with other believers, to let their warmth and their love for the Lord affect you, to work upon you as you work upon them, to allow the fresh winds of the Holy Spirit to blow across those and the nourishment that you get from the Word of God to wake it up and to bring it to life. And so I just give that to you as we get into that season a few months from now (laughs) to think about these things. Are you cultivating an affection for God? If we find ourselves heading down this road where the love is growing cold, what do we do? We're invited to do two things here. The first is to repent. And I'm a little sorry that that word is probably an ugly word on most of our ears because we've heard it with such shrill voices from unloving people. When Jesus offers repentance here, I want you to think about it as an invitation, a beautiful invitation. In other words, once partly gone, not too far gone, you can come back. You can turn around. Repentance is turning away from this and turning towards this. There's almost two movements to it. It is a forsaking what I was doing and an embracement of what God would have me to do. That's repentance. A full 180 degree turn, not 90 degrees. If you go 90, you're going back the other 90. You got to go 180 and say, I'm done with this. And Jesus, I'm embracing you and I'm going to curate a heart for you. We turn away from and we turn towards him. When we repent, I will remind you, we're not informing God of anything. Rather, we are agreeing with God about everything even if by faith. When we repent, we are saying, by faith, I believe. You are God, I am not. You are right, I am not. I will orient my life to you, even if it leaves me with some mystery. Remember, Jesus begins this letter with, I know your deeds. I know. When you repent, you're just saying, I'm orienting myself to you. The last thing that I think here is that is good news in this is that we are able to curate a heart that loves God. In other words, the instruction of Christ here plants hope within all of us that we are not just passive recipients of our heart. We don't just get it, whatever it is, but we're co-creators of it. We cultivate our appetites. You know this with food, if, if not for other things, right? If you're eating junk food, You want junk food. If you start eating healthy things over time, you start longing for healthy things. It's weird. Why do I want a salad? I don't know. I guess because I've been eating salads. We cultivate our appetites and we can cultivate or curate a heart for God. And I simply would ask the question, how do we do this? Jesus says, do the things you did at first. I would bring you back into your own story with God And ask you to consider those things that you were doing when your heart was fully aflame in love with him. Maybe you began with simple Bible study, but you were diligent about it. 
So maybe it's time to return to a real devotion. Maybe you are really engaged in some vibrant worship music, and it's time to engage musically a way that awakens your heart's longing for the Lord too. Maybe it's art or conversation or service or being in the natural world. I, I don't know. It's almost hard for me to, you see what I'm saying? For all of you, it could be slightly different things. I would tell you if you're struggling with this, come and talk to us and let us help you put together a plan to curate, actively curate a heart for God, a love for Him, and a love for your fellow man. The heart wants what the heart wants. Obviously, the heart's wants can change, so we have to curate a heart that loves God and man, realizing that we are not slaves to a roving heart, and remembering that God, by His grace, has promised His Holy Spirit to put within us a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone, a heart that longs to do good. So God has already started that process, and we can join with Him in that. Above all else, friends, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the correction to the Ephesians, and we might as well be then. This letter could very easily be written to the Bethelonians. Lord, I'm proud of this church and its steady stand for truth over the years, its orthodoxy, its commitment to your word and to sound doctrine. I'm thankful, Lord, that this church protects sound doctrine and refutes those who would oppose it. May we, in addition to that, God, curate a heart for you, a love for you and for our fellow man. We don't want to be self-righteous folk. We want to be those who are so funded by love from God and for our fellow man that we could not let them harm themselves and therefore would stand compassionately and boldly for the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.